April 24, 2023, Fox News, a bastion of right-leaning and at times full-on far-right ideological thought, announced that its primetime political commentary show, Tucker Carlson Tonight, would be canceled, and its host, Tucker Carlson, would be dismissed effective immediately. This was a bit of a shock because Carlson has been such a force on the right side of American political discourse for so long. His show was one of the most watched shows of any kind on cable in the United States, and he'd been hoisting the network's viewer numbers since 2016 when that show kicked off and he started serving as the core of its primetime lineup. Carlson has also been influential beyond the media component of conservative politics in the United States, helping to push former U.S. President Donald Trump into office and serving as a kingmaker for candidates across the right side of the political spectrum. His approval or disapproval could make or break a campaign, and his framing of issues often set the tone for those issues all the way up to the White House. Despite that impact and influence, though, he was kicked off Fox News with relatively little fanfare or notice, seemingly assuming that things were going fine, even up to the last moment. He only learned that he had been let go, offered the opportunity to resign, basically, which is a polite way to fire powerful people, hoping it will incentivize them to not make too much of a fuss or sue anyone on the way out, only learning all of that as he was preparing for his next episode and told, nope, sorry, you are done. This story is notable for a few reasons, many of which revolve around that aforementioned massive influence that Carlson has had in conservative politics. He is a big deal. He has a huge, loyal following, and he's considered by many, even those that don't like him, and who disagree with him about essentially everything, to be the intellectual center of the Republican Party, a smart and thoughtful person who does things strategically and in a well-planned-out way, even if that means supporting candidates he doesn't actually like and in fact hates, like Donald Trump, because he believes it is inevitable or useful for those candidates to rise to the top at least for a little while. What seemed to seal the deal here, ultimately, was a combination of his many beefs with the higher-ups at Fox News, an apparently truly toxic work culture that he tended and encouraged, which was looking more and more like a liability for the company, and a collection of information that was provided as part of a lawsuit against Fox News by a voting technology company called Dominion that alleged that the network knowingly and repeatedly slandered them by spreading wild-eyed conspiracies without evidence about their being involved in some kind of vote-rigging scheme during the 2020 presidential election. Those conspiracies, as it turns out, were repeatedly, nearly gleefully spread by many anchors on Fox News with their full knowledge that they were false. And we know that they knew they were doing this because of text message conversations that were divulged as part of that lawsuit, which show, among other things, that Carlson and other hosts, but again, he was the top personality on the network at this time, continued flogging these unbacked allegations while not believing them at all himself. Those text messages also showed that he thought the top brass at the company were idiots, that he hated Donald Trump, 
again while continuing to celebrate him on air, and that he regularly and knowingly pushed overtly white supremacist messages on his show, while also behaving disdainfully and disrespectfully and at times maliciously toward women. He was a ticking time bomb, in other words, for the network's legal department, a lodestone for more lawsuits. But he was also working against the company's managerial ambitions. And because of who he was and how he behaved, he'd been pushing advertisers away for years. The company was able to sell ads for MyPillow and other proudly conservative business entities. But most mainstream ad buyers, the Coca-Colas, the Procter & Gamble's of the world, would not touch him. They did not want to be associated with him or his show. About two weeks after his firing, Carlson announced via a video posted on Twitter that his show would be returning, but not to cable. It would be broadcast on Twitter. This move is being widely regarded as a bit of a gamble, though it makes sense for Carlson, as he's likely legally unable to work for a rival network, non-competes being what they are. And though he's not supposed to host any kind of show at all, he's already launched lawsuits against his former employer, claiming they broke their contract with him. So this would appear to be a gambit that's allowing him to test the bounds of his new off-network position while also experimenting to see if his audience will follow him wherever he goes, including to a social network that has been suffering from a lot of its own controversy of late, under the ownership and management of another conservative controversy magnet, Elon Musk. What I'd like to talk about today is the new state of affairs in the television world, how the streaming wars are evolving, and how what happens next looks a bit like what came before. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The pivot to video era of social media and online publishing began in 2015, when many content producers were incentivized by the rewards and algorithms baked into the platforms through which they published and promoted their work to shift away from written content and toward video content. The idea was to reorient toward younger audiences who seemed to prefer this type of content, but also to accommodate the desires of advertisers who preferred video over text. It was easier to track and more addictive than text-based content. So Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and all the other big players started nudging everyone toward video, in some cases dramatically reducing the reach of non-video content as part of that incentivization. And this made advertisers largely happy, but users not so much. This focus ebbed and flowed a bit after the initial few years, but resurged dramatically as TikTok started claiming more and more youthful attention, and the other networks once more started to panic, worrying that they would age themselves out of existence, not having any brand credibility with the youths. So they fiddled with the knobs once more, tweaking things so that folks who posted, in this case, short-form vertical videos, were richly rewarded, while those who posted essentially anything else saw their reach and follower numbers plunge into obscurity. We are still in the midst of that second pivot to video, though some networks have realized that this numerically beneficial pivot might be alienating some of their users, including content-producing factories like online publications, and have moderated their incentives a little bit. 
That said, some of those content-producing factories have actually gone out of business. The money spigot turned off because they can no longer garner the views and clicks they were once able to attract via these networks. Most people find their stuff through Facebook and Twitter and such, and that reach has been decreasing and also becoming more expensive. The platforms charge more to reach the same audience as before, and it's more costly to produce video content than written content, and that has left their business models untenable. And that's meant a lot of publications, even big ones like BuzzFeed and Vice, have been going out of business, or going bankrupt, or otherwise recalibrating to become wisps of their previous selves. The broader streaming video world is also in the midst of a recalibration, following the most dramatic days of the streaming wars, which were arguably kicked off by the introduction of a major new player in the space, Disney+. Disney is an absolute behemoth of a media company, owning properties like Disney, Marvel, ESPN, National Geographic, LucasArts, which is behind Star Wars, and ABC, among many others, including its cruise lines, theme parks, and other in-person, real-world entertainment experiences. Disney Plus is Disney's effort to stop being just a producer of content that is farmed out to other services and networks like Netflix, and to instead capture what's become the most desired type of income in many industries right now, recurring revenue. In other words, they wanted to maintain more control over their content holistically rather than selling it to various other entities, some of which used those properties in ways that did not resonate terribly well with Disney's larger plans and vibe. And they wanted to get their viewers, their audience, their customers to pay them consistently every single month or possibly a larger sum once a year, keeping them within their brand-defined world and then opening them up to upsells at the same time, like visiting their theme parks, seeing films in theaters, and so on, alongside those consistent, predictable membership fees. Disney Plus, by all indications, was a huge success, and they built on what they'd learned running the Disney Channel and other traditional media entities, and by partly owning Hulu, a streaming service that contains content from an array of different media entities, to launch a streaming service that attracted 86.8 million subscribers in the first year alone, that number increasing by another almost 10 million the following month. That was in late 2020 and early 2021, respectively. And for context, Netflix, the first big player in the online video content streaming space, had around 205 million subscribers during that same period. So Disney was not on top and didn't even have half as many subscribers as Netflix, but they were growing incredibly rapidly. Around that same time, other small but burgeoning streaming services saw an uptick in large part because of the global pandemic that was forcing many of us to stay home more of the time, looking for things to do. So competitors like Paramount Plus and Peacock and even HBO's Max service, which was a premium offering at a higher cost and thus had long been a lot smaller but more profitable than its competition, began to see a lot more action, a lot more subscribers, and consequently a lot more revenue. The pandemic, though still raging in the sense that 1,000 people a week on average are dying of COVID in the U.S. alone, as of the day I'm recording this, is officially over. And for many of us, life has returned to something normal-ish, which has meant a return to going outside and doing things, going into work at an office, and otherwise being away from our screens more of the time. 
which has led to a concomitant reduction in streaming figures. Some of this may be a snapback effect after spending too much time binge-watching things for the better part of three years, but some of it is no doubt reflective of where our norms, our defaults, actually rest, and that means a bit to substantially less screen time than during the height of the pandemic. So while some networks are continuing to see growth, Netflix, for instance, was up 7.66 million subscribers between September of 2022 and February of 2023. Others, like Disney Plus, are down. Disney reported a loss of 2.4 million subscribers over that same period. The worth noting is that they are up to 161.8 million subscribers total, even after that loss. So they are creeping up on Netflix's dominant position, if more slowly than before. And they did raise their prices recently, which lost them a fair number of members. But it also increased their incoming revenue a bit. Smaller services, and especially those tied to networks like NBC and to those awash with procedurals and reality TV shows like Paramount, are also growing, though relatively slowly. Peacock is at around 20 million subscribers since September, which is up from 5 million before that, so not huge in overall numbers, but very rapid recent growth, while Paramount is up by nearly 10 million, bringing them to 56 million total subscribers. Those smaller services in particular are seeing new competition from an unlikely direction, though. And this new competition is worrying some of those larger players as well, to the point that they are tweaking their business models and plans to account for it. Traditional TV, both network and cable, has been in a slump for a long time. Streaming services are just a lot more convenient for many viewers, and the limitations, both budgetary and practical, like having to catch a show at a particular time on a single, unmovable, large screen, have been nudging people more and more toward digital, portable, easy-to-access, wherever and whenever options. The main advantage network programming displayed on these big conventional TV screens has had, though, is that it is free. It's ad-supported, like TV has been since the beginning, so folks can watch whatever they want without adding another monthly recurring bill to their budget, which is welcome for many, especially during periods of economic tumult and disconcertion, as is the case right now. TV ad revenue, though, has been collapsing. It fell 11% in the most recent quarter, due in large part to reduced spending by tech and insurance companies, reflecting those larger economic concerns and a reduction in business spending triggered by higher interest rates and worries about a possible recession. Ad spending is expected to fall another 3.4%, according to Insider Intelligence, for the 2023-2024 season. That drop attributed to additional economic uncertainty and a lot more cord-cutting amongst the TV show-watching population. People are going online to the abundant and generally high-quality streaming services that are available today. Traditional TV, then, is not a huge threat to these streaming services. The threat goes the other way most of the time. What is a burgeoning threat, though, especially as these streaming services pivot to profit, consolidating their hold, raising their prices, and spending less overall in order to better weather the impending economic storm and outlast their competition during this tricky period, is a wave of new streaming options that utilize the advertising business model rather than what's become the more conventional monthly payment model. These new ad-supported models vary from the set-top-box traditional TV ad placement approach in a few important ways, though, and there are two 
primary dominant approaches being used right now called AVOD and FAST. AVOD, A-V-O-D, stands for Ad Supported Video On Demand, which is a version of the vanilla VOD, Video On Demand, offering. VOD as a broader umbrella term refers to a one-to-one -one connection between a user and the output of a server located somewhere around the world. That server has content on it that it delivers individually to a user's device connecting to it via a particular VOD service. This can be funded through subscriptions, which is an approach called SVOD, or it can be transactional, where you pay to watch a specific video on a one-purchase basis, which is usually called TVOD. FAST, in contrast, F-A-S-T, stands for Free Ad-Supported TV, and it represents something more akin to the traditional TV experience, but on the internet. So scheduled programming, shows and movies being streamed at a specific scheduled time, so that you can stop by and watch whatever they're playing, capturing it in the middle of a show maybe, but you can't watch it on demand, and you watch these channels online instead of over antenna-capturable airwaves or some kind of cable setup. Some of the most dominant AVOD services at the moment include Pluto TV, the Roku Channel, Crackle, Voodoo, Daily Motion, and of course, YouTube, which is different in some ways from the others in that it has a social component as well, but similar in terms of the technology and its approach to advertising, as AVOD services allow companies to use data about whomever is connecting to their servers to deliver more relevant, or at least more desirable to them, advertising spots. Worth noting here, too, is that Twitter's hosting of Tucker Carlson's new show will likely use a similar model, possibly opening that platform up for this type of advertising revenue, though at the moment they seem to be favoring, at least overtly, an SVOD model, giving some stuff away for free and putting the other content behind a Twitter Blue membership paywall. So a monthly or yearly paid subscription would allow users to access more such content incentivizing people to subscribe, and then giving some of that payout to Carlson, and then theoretically other creators as well who opt for the same business model on the Twitter platform. Fast is a bit less common at the moment, but big players like Amazon, which has one of the larger SVOD subscription-based streaming services available through its Amazon Prime video platform, are getting in on that action as well. It recently introduced Fire TV channels, which will be available on all its Fire TV devices, which plug into the HDMI port of traditional TVs and allow folks to stream what amounts to a collection of traditional TV channels, playing stuff on a scheduled basis, not on demand, but streaming it over the internet, not network television infrastructure. This will be available alongside Amazon's aforementioned premium paid Prime Video offering, which is a bit like Netflix, and its free ad-supported version of the same, Freevee, which is something like Netflix's recently deployed ad-supported tier, but without the reduced price Netflix demands. Freevee is free, and it's entirely supported by the ads displayed throughout the on-demand offered programming. This allows Amazon to further diversify their available advertising real estate at a moment in which customers are feeling less spendy and thus possibly more open to free ad-supported entertainment options rather than yet another monthly subscription fee.
Interestingly, some platforms like the aforementioned Pluto TV have both AVOD and FAST options in the same interface rather than splitting it into different brands. This allows them to present two different ad types depending on what folks are watching, but it also sometimes leads to awkwardly placed marketing messages because they may have been optimized for one or the other. A demographically targeted ad chucked into an empty slot on a non-optimized channel or program, for instance. There's a distinction in the technologies used to deliver these ads, too, with some allowing folks to skip ads after a certain amount of time, while others are unstoppable, and some are more trackable than others in terms of being able to verify that the ads were seen, or at least streamed, by the end user. So while not entirely a wild west in terms of knowing what we're dealing with and these entities knowing what to charge per ad unit and how to measure the success of a unit, it is still a bit of a scramble with a lot of imperfections because of those misalignments and a slew of new entities getting involved trying to shoehorn one approach to advertising or a brand new advertising unit, in the case of Netflix, into their existing infrastructure, which might be optimized for something else entirely. The advertisers do seem to be coming to the table for all this, though, despite the moderate amount of chaos and uncertainty surrounding all these new entrants. Pluto TV, for instance, has been able to bring on Instacart, Chime, Coca-Cola, McDonald's, Procter & Gamble, Capital One, and other hefty spenders in the first quarter of 2023. Again, a period of lower overall spending because of economic concerns and the reduced business and consumer spending that accompanies such concerns. So if it's that good already, it could get even better as those economic concerns start to diminish. All of which bodes well for the near-term success of such models, if not necessarily telling us which approaches to streaming content will win out ultimately, and which sorts of entities, traditional TV players, tech businesses like Netflix and Amazon, or social networks like YouTube and Twitter, will become the foundation of this new content delivery environment that's being laid down, in part at least, this year. All of which is good news, or at least a hint of a whiff of a possibility of good news, for the majority of streaming services out there, which, though still growing their numbers generally, or bare minimum not collapsing too quickly at a tricky competitive moment, are not making a profit on the services they offer, the vaunted lock-in effect of the membership models that they have prioritized failing to materialize, and many of them left holding a collection of expensive technologies and intellectual properties searching for more ways to generate revenue from those assets to make these platforms sustainable. The book I would like to recommend today is called Venomous Lump Sucker by Ned Bowman. This is a fun piece of science fiction, near-future speculative fiction, really, that touches on topics ranging from genetic modification of life, of animals and plants and such, the business, the economic, the intellectual property rights implications of doing so, 
miscalibrated incentives in terms of trying to do what seem to be positive things, but then causing the opposite accidentally as a consequence of the ill-shaped incentives that are put into place. And what a future in which we are scrambling to do something about the climate and how the climate is changing and where technologies related to genetic modification and the creation of entirely new entities using such tools are both possible and common. How that might turn out, how it might influence the incentives in place, how those things might be influenced in return by those incentives, and how folks who are trying to do the right thing and those who are trying to self-enrich might behave existing within that type of context. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Venomous Lump Sucker by Ned Bowman. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other news-focused podcast, One Sentence News, wherever you get your pods or at onesentencenews.com. And please feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and YouTube, and Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.